Let me just uh, say a quick word of, of announcement or reminder. If you are here today at this service as a new member candidate or an elder who's been asked to help interview those candidates today after, uh, about after lunch at 12.30, I want to remind you of that new member lunch. It's a very large group, and we really hope that you would all remember to be there if you're if you're a person who should be there. So uh, let, let that reminder go to those who, who know it applies. We're looking at the 18th chapter of Matthew today. I've set before you for a few weeks this chapter. The scholars all believe this is a pretty much unified discourse of Jesus in a similar way as the Sermon on the Mount or other discourses, the Olivet Discourse coming later, are unified. And the theme, the uniting trunk of this chapter is how the people of God, how believers in Christ relate to one another. And they do that first by humility that is childlike, we saw in the beginning part of the chapter. They do that knowing the importance of someone wandering astray from the flock and uh, the fact that just because that one's wandered off, that that one is important. And so we looked and really concentrated on verses 15 through 20 that talk about ways to pursue someone who seems to be offensive or disobedient or sinful against others in the flock. If it's a one-on-one thing, verse 15 said, go and see if you can win quietly uh, your brother to your viewpoint on this. Talk it over. But then last time we looked at the principle that even brings church leadership into involvement if the serious offense cannot be solved any other way. By the way, you know, it's amazing how God brings these things about in His timing. Our presbytery just yesterday dealt with a case of of discipline, and again, it was the best possible kind. Not that the fault that brought it about was anything good, but it was a person, a minister actually, in our presbytery admitting a fault admitting it fully and freely before his brothers and receiving a censure, but not one that was in any sense unto death and in many embraces and many, many genuine signs of real forgiveness and healing, the Presbytery was able to deal with that. So God's Word is certainly very current. We look today at a parable that Jesus spoke that concludes this chapter. I begin reading at verse 21. It's it's a rather severe story with a pretty straightforward lesson. So a lot of what we'll do is try to apply it rather than have to spend too much time explaining it. Listen to God's Word, His own holy Word. Matthew 18, beginning at 21. Peter came to Jesus, and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. And the servant's master 
took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay you back. Sounds familiar, right? But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had it on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Very few things cut across the grain of human nature more than forgiving others. We would like to think we are forgiving people, but we are not forgiving by nature. Deep honesty would cause us all to admit that nursing grudges can be fun. It's fun. Christian and non-Christian alike, human beings tend to agree with something said by King Louis XII of France a long time ago. He was an honest man. He said, nothing ever smells quite as sweet as the dead body of your enemy. Human beings agree with that. We actually enjoy withholding forgiveness, I think because it gives us a sense, at least it's a false sense, but it gives us a sense of power over that person as an antagonist. If I have not forgiven him, my unforgiveness is kind of like a noose around his neck, and I can at least mentally dangle him over the fires of my vengeance. And I can compute the arithmetic of non-forgiveness, writing lists of all the things he has done that really offend me, that he's never done anything about. And if I actually did forgive that person, I would lose my last refuge of self-pity because I like reminding myself that I'm a wounded person and somebody's against me. You say it every Sunday, I think you do, there in the pew, every Sunday. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Legend has it that a young boy one time was praying the Lord's Prayer in his mother's hearing, and he showed a lot of wisdom that he didn't even know as a young boy when he he goofed it up, and he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are dead against us. That's kind of what it's about, isn't it? Colossians 3.13 was in a word of assurance that Keith spoke to you earlier here in the service where Paul wrote, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Very simple, six words. Forgive as 
the Lord forgave you. Simple words. You could memorize that verse. If I said that's today's memory verse, it wouldn't take you long at all, no matter how bad your memory is. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You, you could memorize that. Simple. But almost impossible to obey apart from the working of the grace of God to change the human heart. For non-forgiveness is natural to us. Real forgiveness of God's kind is supernatural, both in its motivation and the decision that makes it work out in our lives. The last two Sundays we've looked, as I mentioned, at Matthew 18, at a process that Jesus prescribed here for seeking reconciliation with someone who committed a serious fault before you. It's assumed, I think, that the, the fault is, is, is a great enough one. It's not just a little thing. There are many little things that people do, little slights, everyday things that you can just overlook. You certainly don't follow this process with everything. But when there's something grievous enough to disrupt a relationship, he said, go and and see if you can show it to your brother between the two of you privately. Keep it private and see if you can win that relationship again. But then, if you cannot, we saw last time in verses 16 to 18 that a more formal involvement might be required again if the, the fault is something really important that just can't be dealt with any other way. Now, it's easy for people to conclude from those verses that if this offender does not repent, does not recognize his wrong and say, I'm sorry, then I don't have to forgive, right? Wrong. Wrong. That's an absolute misunderstanding of verses 15 through 20. And that's why this parable, I believe, is put where it is, right after that word about what we might call transactional forgiveness. The, the, the ideal, of course, in, in 15 to 20 is that everything would be reconciled. The ideal result is the person would say, I'm very sorry. I see what I've done. I repent before God. I want that relationship right with, and, and you say, why, my brother, there's nothing I want more than to forgive you, and I do. That's a wonderful situation. We might call that transactional forgiveness. When you actually get to tell the other person, I forgive you, and all is made right. But it doesn't always happen that way. And there's a broader attitude to forgiveness that is spoken to in verses 21 and following. Forgiveness is the highest of human virtues because it so directly reflects what God did through Christ at the cross. The most striking thing Jesus did perhaps on the cross or said on the cross were his words, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I'm not aware that any one of the them that were intended, that is the Jerusalem leaders, the Roman soldiers, everybody who had conspired in that whole thing, not one of them had said, oh Jesus, please forgive me, I'm really sorry, I No, didn't happen. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know. They're ignorant. They they don't even understand the need for repentance. But we need to forgive them for what they're doing in ignorance. You see, the Christian life begins in God's absolute forgiveness of us by the atonement of the cross, the sin dead against us being worked out by the payment of Jesus at Calvary. 
And the Christian continues with that debt forgiven to need to give forgiveness from out of ourselves to other people all along the way as we live. There are always going to be failures and breakdowns and and skirmishes and misunderstandings between other believers, right in families, that require us to forgive. And our text is telling us today that a person who cannot forgive is a person lacking in godly character and Christ-like love. An unforgiving Christian is a living contradiction. A living contradiction of the new nature that we claim God has given us in Christ. Let's look at this. The first thing to consider is a question that's posed in verse 21 by Peter. (laughs) You should get used to that by now, aren't you? Matthew has Peter all the time piping up, being the one that leads into some discussion as the spokesman. And it's easy to see why Peter asked this question. If these things are in sequence, and we believe they are, he had heard about settling debts, settling wrongs. Somebody had created an offense, so Peter thinks, hmm, I'm supposed to forgive. Well, I've heard the rabbis discuss this in the synagogue. And so he asks a question that's based on the context of rabbinical discussion of that day. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? As many as seven times? And Jesus answers, Peter, I tell you, not seven, but 77. Now, the rabbis had debated this. They saw the demand for forgiveness in the, it's in the Old Testament as well as the New. And they were scholars of the Old Testament, and they had reached some conclusions. A very common conclusion was that three times was certainly good. You know, somebody could do the same wrong against you three times in a row, and you should forgive three times. But then you had discharged your duty. The fourth time, no, forget it. So you see, Peter's coming along here knowing Jesus pretty well or thinking that he knows Jesus pretty well by now and, and knowing that Jesus is probably not going to be as limited in his, his ideas as those rabbis were. And so he says, he thinks of a number, seven, number of perfection in the Bible, should I forgive as many as seven times? He thinks, wow, you know, I bet Jesus will like it that I'm that big-hearted. Now, you might have been confused as I read. I was reading the New International Version today, as I usually do, and I checked a number of modern translations. Actually, the translation of this number 77 is not the more common. Many say Many translations say 70 times 7. You might have had that Bible in your lap. And you say, oh, what's going on here? Don't they know how to figure out the numbers? Well, the interesting thing is that the Greek statement can be read either way. It could be either 77 or 390 if you do your multiplication. I'm sorry, 490, right? (laughs) Uh, Listen, I I honestly, my wife will tell you, this is the truth. If I want to know what 9 times 8 is, I ask my wife. I'm serious. She'll tell you. I I was absent when they did multiplication tables. 490, okay? It's either one. The Greek actually allows either one. But you see, that doesn't change the meaning. It really doesn't matter because this isn't about arithmetic. What Jesus is saying here is you don't count at all where forgiveness is concerned. It's not as if you stop and, and when number 78 comes up, you say, sorry, 
fulfilled my quota or number 491. Sorry, can't forgive. I've done it 490 times. No, forgiveness is not a commodity that gets weighed out like five pounds of sugar. People who live under the law think of it that way. But you see, people who are under grace, people bought by the cross of Jesus, do not think about it that way. Now, it's a truth that well-intentioned Christians, and I think they are often well-intentioned, take on a kind of legalism when they say, well, I am very ready, I hope I'm very ready to be a forgiving person, but of course, my forgiveness is going to be conditioned upon a proper repentance. And this could easily arise from the fact of the positioning of this passage we're dealing with with the preceding passage. It says there's a process by which you should try to get your brother to repent. And so we might think, well, when he fulfills his end, I'll fulfill my end. Well, first of all, don't forget there are hundreds and hundreds of petty little things that don't even enter into the circumstance of that process. Every day, little faults that you should simply ignore, that you should forgive immediately. Say, well, I know my brother's kind of brusque or not too sensitive or pretty controlling or whatever, and and I have to forgive him for that. But even when Matthew 18, 15 is followed, don't confuse the formal act of becoming reconciled and then being able to say to the person, I forgive you. That's a great thing if you get to that formal ability to say, I forgive you. That's wonderful. But don't confuse that with consciously forgiving him in your heart even before you go to him in the first place to tell him that there's something wrong. Forgiveness is not hinged upon reconciliation. It's not hinged upon repentance. They are different acts. Sometimes they are found together. Often they are not. And an offender may be 100% guilty as charged. He may utterly refuse repentance. The church may have to pursue him. The worst case scenario might ensue where he is cut off from the body of the church as, as was described here in church discipline before this. Guess what? you should still forgive him. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're practicing forgiveness arithmetic. You're saying, I will grant pardon to her when she shows me that she deserves it. Can't you see that that is utterly contrary to the radical mercy that God in Jesus Christ showed to you? And you are sitting there in your little forgiveness counting house like Scrooge, you know. You've got your forgiveness coins all piled up in front of you, and you say, well, I'll dole out a coin grudgingly here if she actually deserves it. But this one hasn't met the conditions yet, so no coin for them. It doesn't matter whether the text says 77 times or 70 times 7. Take your choice. What Jesus is saying is there are no limits. And the key point is to ask yourself, don't I expect God to have no limits in forgiving me? You might, if you want a label for this first point, I didn't even label it, did I? The first point is, how do I forgive you? Let me count the ways. Famous poet paraphrased. How do I forgive you? Let me count the ways. No. Jesus says, you're not allowed 
to count. It's not about counting. It's about grace. I expect God to forgive me based on unlimited grace. How can I set boundaries? How can I be a counter when I've been forgiven a million times what has been transacted against me by anyone else? Well, secondly, then, let us look at the parable. Peter gave us the question. Jesus answered it and gave us a principle there. There's no limits. Now, here's the story that that illustrates it, and it's so straightforward, we don't have to spend a lot of time explaining it. It, it, The story just really comes across in vivid imagery. The parable of the unforgiving servant in verses, starting in verse 23, which illustrates the total absurdity of an unforgiving Christian. Jesus mentions a fictional king who had these, these servants. Now, Probably these people are in a different category. If you're just thinking of, you know, the household servant who sort of cleans up and serves dinner, I don't think that's what we've got here. What we have here are people who are probably like provincial agents or governors over a territory, tax collectors who are to go out and receive rents and and taxes for a big territory because it would have to be for the amounts involved here. And by the way, just, just a little footnote, this is the way Matthew made his living before becoming a disciple, so this story must have rung true for him. Well, at the annual accounting, you know, the guys called in, well, you have the territory over there, all those holdings and ownings and, you know, cities and villages you were supposed to collect from. Okay, you owe X. Where is it? And this man comes in, and he is short, not by a few hundred. Not by a few thousand, but by what in that day was at least many millions, if not even some would say approaching billions of dollars. The amount that he was short, 10,000 talents, was an astronomical sum in those days. Again, the number is, is made big on purpose. It was almost an unthinkable number. Different commentators try to translate what was owed there, 10,000 talents, into today's money. And, of course, you have to look at if the commentary you're reading was written in 1920. They haven't quite got the coin exchange right. But the point here is that it was so large. 10,000 in the Bible is, an, is sort of like the biggest number. You know, We would say trillions and trillions. I, I, I bet most of us don't even know what the next number, unless you're a mathematician. What is the next number beyond a trillion? I don't know. I, probably heard it before, but I can't think of it right now. And so we were, a trillion, we'd say. Oh, you can't think any bigger than that. Well, that's what 10,000 meant in, the, in those days. How this shortfall occurred, we don't know. This guy must have committed some kind of fraud. This was bigger than the Enron scandal, really. All right? And by the way, the Bible says that all the gold used in Solomon's temple, which Remember, shined with gold from afar in the sunlight. All the gold used in Solomon's temple was 2,000 talents. This man owed 10,000. One person calculated and said that, well, no, let me get to that in a minute. I'll just hold that for a minute. But it's just this huge number. If he was to pay it, he would have to be the friend of Bill Gates, or he would have to know a Saudi oil sheik or somebody like that to say, have you got enough cash available to bail me out? Just about nobody on the planet would. 
Well, Jesus was making a point here. He wanted us to hear that every one of us has amassed this kind of a huge debt with God. We have. God is absolutely holy. The idea of sin is repulsive to God. He cannot even look upon it. And we absolutely are not holy. We are full of sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short, far short of the glory of God. It's an understatement to say fall short. It's like, you know, I've sometimes said to people, it's like saying you're going to swim from San Francisco to Hawaii, and one mile offshore you drown. That's how close you came to Hawaii. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 49 says, No man can possibly pay God a ransom large enough to redeem, to pay the price for even one human life. But the good news of Christ says Jesus did pay a ransom, and he didn't just pay it for one. He paid it for many. That's the good news. God requires this enormous debt. We can't pay it. Christ paid it. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, Lord, if you keep a record of sins, who could stand before you? Well, don't let that cause you to think that God doesn't keep a record. He does, as a matter of fact. He does know every sin. He knows the, the, the devious things that were in my mind this morning before I got to church. He knows the covetousness in our hearts. He does keep a record, but... By the blood of Jesus Christ, he also wipes the same record clean. It's not that he doesn't know how much we owe. He does know it, down to the penny. But when he wipes it out, he says, it doesn't exist anymore. Isaiah 43, 25 has the promise of God that I will not remember their sins anymore. You need to be reminded of this. God saying, I will not remember, is not anything like me not remembering. Last week, a member of our congregation, relatively new member, I suppose I could claim that as an excuse, came up to my wife and myself as we were having lunch in a little bistro in town here, and the lady came over to greet us, and I did not know who she was. I had to ask her name. I was ashamed. If I'd seen her with her husband, I would have known. They're a couple in my mind, but I didn't know her alone. I have a weak brain. It forgets. God's not remembering our sins is not like that. When God does not remember, it's a decision not to remember. It knows what it knows. God's mind knows everything, but he says, I will take what I know, and I will set it over here. In fact, one part of Scripture says he sets it on the other side of the sea, as far away as it could be set, and I will choose not to know it, refer to it, think of it, or count it against you ever again. God does keep a record, but he decides not to count it because of the blood of Christ for those who claim that wonderful act of justification in the blood of Jesus. So forgiveness by God is an act of free grace that recognizes there is a debt, but takes the debt and sets it aside and forgets about it. Now, this parable of Jesus is full of extremes here. You see what this man does. He's been forgiven everything. He begged, you know, at first the thing was you're going to put them in prison and sell the family. (laughs) Selling them would not have earned enough to hardly, you know, put a tiny dent in that huge debt. 
And the king, just in sheer magnanimity, says, all right, I'll cancel it. He was wealthy enough that he said, it's gone. It's gone. It doesn't exist. Well, then what happens? And you love the contrast here. This man goes out. He should now be the kindest man alive. Well, what does he meet? He meets his fellow territorial governor coming in the door to have his accounting with the king. And remember something. You owe me. Now, the calculation that's been made by the people who understand the values of ancient money is the difference between 10,000 talents and this second amount of denarii, a very small coin, the one man, the one expert says is one six hundred thousandth. The debt that he was owed was one six hundred thousandth of what he'd been forgiven. I don't know how good you are. I've already told you. I'm not good at math in my head. But if this man owed $600 million, the debt against him was $100. And there he is. it's, It's a physical act. He attacked the guy. He's choking him. I will kill you. I will put you in prison forever if you don't pay me this $100. And he did it. He put him in prison. Now you say, how ridiculous. How could that man be that way? But you have to go another step because this isn't just about saying how ridiculous. It's about saying, that's me. And if you don't take that step, then this parable means nothing. You're supposed to see yourself here and say, can I be a totally forgiven Christian man or woman who turns to anybody else in my life who has against me something that is one six hundred thousandth of what I've been forgiven by God, and I'm ready to say, I will never speak to you again. You are out of my life. Forget it. My anger will smolder against you as long as we live. How ridiculous. It's just as ridiculous as this man throttling another person for $100 when he'd been forgiven $600 million. And yet we do that, don't we? Don't we say to somebody in our life at some time, or if I was to confront you and I knew about it and said, you must forgive him, and you said, well, pastor, you can't expect me to forgive blank, and you fill in the blank. I would have to say to you, yes, God does expect you to forgive, and Jesus commands you to forgive. Christian forgiveness does not depend upon whether an apology has been made or is soon on the way. It does not depend on whether the fault was a large one or a small one, whether the relationship has already been mended. It doesn't depend on whether you feel like forgiving because feelings don't enter into it. And you don't have to have forgotten before you forgive. That's one of the stupidest things we say. Well, I can't forget it, so I can't forgive. No, you must forgive, and you will find out that forgetting will be a gradual result, a consequence of forgiving. It doesn't come first, hardly ever. You must give up your right to raise this matter and hold it against somebody and talk to everybody else about it You must abandon your right. Stop counting that wrong. 
Otherwise, you actually are standing in the place of this ruthless servant. And listen, this text doesn't stop. It keeps going because now it says, if you stand in the place of that servant, don't be surprised if God's final judgment of you at the final day is to throw you away from his presence forever. Because his conclusion will be that you didn't actually receive his forgiveness in Christ in the first place. It's very ominous the way this story ends. Very ominous. Some people are so offended, they say, Jesus couldn't have said that. He did say it. If you cannot be forgiven, forgiving, having been forgiven, everything in Christ, then don't be surprised if God's conclusion about you is that you don't know what his forgiveness is. You've never had contact with it, and he will cease contact with you for eternity. So then, our conclusion is this. Forgiveness in the Christian life means an active decision, an active refusal to count the faults of others. Did they hurt you with their criticism? Yes. Was it wrong of them to do what they did? Yes. Have they repented yet? Probably not. Will they ever repent? Possibly never. Must I then forgive? Yes. Why? They don't deserve it. That doesn't matter. It's because of a massive debt that God has forgiven you in Christ. How dare you stand in the place of this utterly ridiculous man in this parable? But that is where you stand if you refuse forgiveness to anyone for a thing so tiny in light of what God has forgiven you. You see, we Again, I remind you, we pray it every week. Does this help you understand what we're saying? Forgive us our debts as, in the same manner as you have forgiven us. Is that saying, well, it's, it's a works thing after all. I have to forgive first and then God decides to forgive me? No, it isn't that. John Owen, greatest theologian of the Puritans, wrote a little sentence about this. He said, our forgiving of others will never procure forgiveness for us. It doesn't buy God's favor. Our forgiveness of others doesn't procure forgiveness, Owen said, but our not forgiving others proves that we ourselves are not forgiven people. That's what's going on when we say forgive us our debts as let us prove in daily life, O God, that you really have poured this grace into us. Let it be seen. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another just as, there it is again, just as, in Christ, God forgave you. If you've tasted divine forgiveness, you cannot be a closed receptacle into which forgiveness flows and flows and flows and nothing ever flows out. You must be a conduit, an open receptacle. God's grace comes in and it goes out again to everybody else. Because the Scripture says that when God by His Spirit makes us believers in Christ in the first place, we become new creations made in the image of Christ. That says that the very life of God comes to live in us 
The Holy Spirit in us is the life of God, the presence of God. That means the grace and mercy of God in us. How can we convincingly claim to have God's divine nature, which is merciful and gracious, in us if no spark of it can be seen by people? Do you see what dangerous ground you stand on when you say, I cannot forgive so-and-so for what they did? You were declaring that that little infinitesimally small thing in the eyes of God that is one six hundred thousandth of what he's forgiven you is so great that the mercy of Christ at work in you cannot deal with it. The gospel says, refuse yourself the right to file those wrongs away in a lot of file cabinets. Those file cabinets will become so odious every time you open the drawer, the poison will fill the air. You need to take a regular inventory of what's in those cabinets, the wrongs of other people, and clean them out with the decision of forgiveness. I was told when I was a teenager, I remember a sermon on this subject that made an impression on me. I don't even remember the text or anything like that, but I just remember being impressed. And the preacher said, it, it might be that you actually need to write it down, whatever it is. Write down, John Jones did this to me on such and such a date, and he did it again, and, and it's become so big in my life, I can't let it go. Write it down. The pastor said, dig a hole and bury it. I obeyed him to the letter. I went in my backyard took dad's shovel, dug a little hole, and put the paper in. You know what? I don't even remember what that problem was or or what it was that had me so stirred up in my life. It was buried and it was gone. More than once as an adult, I don't think my wife even knows this, I've been glad to know that I have a fireplace. Most of our houses have had fireplaces by intention, not for this reason alone. Because more than once I've taken something, that I was brooding on. Somebody, it usually was, that I was brooding on that had really annoyed me and really offended me, and I wrote that person down, and I wrote the offense down, and I folded the paper, and I put it in the fire. I've done this numerous times. And as I did, I prayed for the person and said, Lord, forgive him. Put forgiveness where my heart has only anger and retribution. You know what? Sometimes that physical act made a big difference. All those who receive extraordinary grace must act in accordance with what they've received. Forgiving someone in the name of Jesus is a deliberate act. It's a decision. It's a fixed determination not to count wrongs any longer. It's a liberating decision. It releases gospel joy. And it opens the door to God's great peace. Let's pray. Father, things you ask for are things we need you to do if we're going to do them. We need your power. We need your motivation. We need your push behind our weak wills. Help us never to be caught in the position of this foolish man in the parable. And if there's a moment that we think we are, let your forgiveness be a decision that flows readily, quickly, 
and completely. For Jesus' sake, amen.